Good morning, everyone. Yeah, let's try that one more time. Good morning, everyone. I got a woo the first time. Didn't get one the second time. That's all right. Would you open your Bibles, please, with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is in the New Testament. Um, Although the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, which is ironic, I know. Hebrews is in the New Testament. It's immediately after all of the letters of Paul. So if you see things like Romans and Corinthians and 1st and 2nd Timothy, keep going right. If you see things like James, 1st and 2nd John, 1st and 2nd Peter, go left and you'll land in Hebrews together. Um, But this morning, to start off, I just want to kind of ask us a question this morning. It's a challenging question. It's a challenging question, not because it's intellectually difficult per se, or not because it's some kind of philosophical question, but because I think it's hard for us to come up with a really robust answer to it. I think we'll have kind of these rote answers to it, if you will. But maybe it's hard for us to really reflect on the significance of an answer to this question. The question is this. Why are we here? Like, not why are we here on planet Earth? That's a different question, a deep question, not one we're going to answer this morning. Not why, as we, not, not why are we here, like, as the Canton campus of Mount Perry North, why do we exist? Not that question. My question is more specifically, why are you here? Like, it's Sunday. It's one of the few days of the week that you actually have off from your job, right? And you decided, for some reason, to get up all of your family members, to get dressed, and to come to this place. And I want to know why. And this isn't a condescending question at all. It can come across that way as if I'm trying to get some specific answer out of you, and I'm not. I mean, honestly, if you're 21 years old and you're thinking, I come because there's a really pretty girl that sits three rows in front of me, that's fine. Like, anything is good. But I want to have an interactive portion of the sermon right now. I want us to, maybe for those that are extroverted and confident and speaking in front of a group of people, just to shout out some answers. Why are you here this morning? Why? Anything is good. Like I said, pretty girl, that's fine. Somebody wants to yell that out and make me feel more comfortable. But... Fellowship, okay, what else? Worship together, okay, worship, fellowship, what else? Listening to the word, as I am doing right now, but I'm asking you, so now you are giving the word as speaking back to me. Uh, It's ironic. But yeah, listening to the word, so word, worship, fellowship, what else? Anything else? Volunteer, Volunteer, yeah, right. So some of us have service opportunities that we participate in. Some of us have service obligations, maybe. Some of us are paid to be here, right? But, I mean, all of these kinds of things, we have various answers to this question. And I think it's important that we have an answer to this question. Because um, as as we're kind of living in a world now in which this kind of thing is getting much rarer. And in fact, if you think about it, a lot of the things that we shouted out, with the exception of fellowship, which which is the one we're going to talk about this morning. But if you think about these kinds of things, word and worship, maybe not service opportunities, but things like this. You really don't have to be here for something like that, right? I mean, this sermon, as I'm talking right now, will be put on a podcast in a couple of days that you can download and listen at your convenience. And I'm sure Pastor Sean is a very generous man. And if you were just to email him and say, hey, what songs are you going to sing this Sunday? He would gladly email you back and let you know where you can find them or if he's written him himself and he can give you some version of them. So you can have your own little worship service inside of your car, if you will, at the beach, at your home, wherever it is. This is becoming this isn't the only place where we can hear from God, per se. So why is it that we're here? We're living in a culture, in fact, in which um, church attendance is getting rarer and rarer. And just to show it to you, I have some graphs, charts and graphs, right? This is always fun. It makes you feel like you're in school, right? So um, it's hard to read from where you are. So I'm going to kind of talk you through it, right? So these lines represent various generations um, of people. So the top line is the uh, greatest generation, as it's called. Any generation before, born before 1928. The second line is the silent generation born up to 1943. The fourth line, the third line is the, what's called the boomers, right? Everybody knows what the boomers are. And then the blue line is Generation X, that is 1965 to 1980. And then the last dot, the very small dot at the bottom right corner is the millennials. That's anybody born after 1980. And this right here is percentage of people that attend church weekly or semi-weekly, okay? Almost a lot, right? So the top generation is the one that attends the most in the late 2000s, that top little Arc at the top, 56% of that generation attends some form of religious service, right? But it gets less and less, doesn't it? With each successive generation such that people in my generation, only 18% of us show up in a church service or something like that on a weekly basis. And it's becoming to the point now where anybody's ever heard of this kind of, um, this, this spiritual position known as spiritual but not religious. Anybody ever heard of this? Some of you may be that this morning. They'll, they'll say things like, well, I don't really go to church, but I consider myself to be a Christian. Or I don't really participate in any kind of religious activities, but I consider myself to be a part of that religion. And so it's this idea that 
I'm not really going to commit myself to any kind of one religious principle or, 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 or service per se. And instead, I'm just going to say that I am a spiritual individual. I'm open to God. I'm open to spirits. I'm open to mystery, etc. But this whole church, God, uh, official position on a religion, I'm not really comfortable with. And so it's being reflected in our generation that only 18% of us are showing up at church. And it looks like it's a downward trend. Let's look at the next one. This is really interesting. It's hard for you to see this, I know, but just as you can see, different colors, right? We all know colors in the room. Um, you see darker portions and lighter portions. So the top one is Protestant, right? This is the current number of Protestant people. 83% of them, the long black bar, that's the number of people that grew up in a Protestant church that are still Protestant. 17% are those that did not grow up in a Protestant church but consider themselves to be a Protestant. So 17% of the Protestant population has converted to Protestantism at some point in their life. For those of you that don't know what Protestantism is, it's not pronounced Protestant, Protestant is instead a church, any church that is non-Catholic here in the West, right? And then the Catholic is the middle, but the bottom is the unaffiliated. That is, those that consider themselves not to be a part of any religion. I want you to look at this. Only 25% of people today that say that they are no religion, that is, that they are kind of open to God but don't have a specific belief about Him, only 25% grew up that way. 75% of people that consider themselves to be unreligious but yet believe in God converted to that at some point in their life, which is amazing to me. You have one in five of the, of the U.S. population says that they don't believe in anything, and one in three of my generation says they really don't believe in anything. They're just kind of open to this mass spirituality. Why? Why is this the case? Does it have to be this way? Well, I think there's two primary reasons before we get into our text, and I think they're really important. And the first is this. I think it's the way that Christians are often perceived, right? I don't know. Uh, so I think that we get a bad rap in society a lot. In fact, uh, they, there's a Barna group that did this kind of interview of people that were aged 16 to 29 that were non-Christian and asked them, what are their opinions of the Christian people? And these are the, uh, the things that they said. 91% of people, the highest uh, adjective that we got described as a church, not Canton Campus, but obviously, but this great big capital C church, is that we are anti-homosexual. The 87% said we're judgmental. 85% said we're hypocritical. 78% said we're sheltered. That is, we're old-fashioned. We don't understand reality. 75% said we're too political. And 70% said we're proselytizers. This is the way we're stereotyped, friends. And I don't think it's our fault, really. I don't think that you're going around blasting people with bullhorns. If you are, we need to have a conversation. Um, but I do think, I think it's largely a part of the media, right? So the media misrepresents everything. But it, I, don't, I don't know if you ever noticed this. It's really frustrating as a Christian individual when you're watching some kind of documentary about Christianity, right? Or some kind of religious documentary. And they'll get, let's get the Christian opinion upon this, right? And they find what seems to be the most uneducated individual in the state of Georgia to ask them about Christian principles, right? And they're like, what is your opinion? What is the Christian opinion on the Syria war? And they're like, I don't know. I'm just going to ride in on a white horse, you know? And it's like, really? Why didn't you call me, you know? Like, just call my friends. Call anybody in this room. Just don't ask that guy, right? He has no idea what he's saying. And this is the reason people perceive us in this way, right? Anybody, the second they find out you're a Christian or something, for most of the people in the room, the second they find out you're a Christian, right? It's like, oh goodness, right? Here they go. Here comes the Bible thumping, right? Because I think that's the way that the media often portrays us. So I think people shy away from places like this because of the way that they understand us to be. But I think there's a more fundamental answer to the reason why people are not attending services like these. Now hear me. I'm not concerned so much with attendance. Attendance is, it's going to sound like I'm some kind of Bible-thumping Sunday school teacher. I'm not concerned with attendance. Lack of attendance is symptomatic of a larger issue, and the larger issue is an unwillingness to commit to a community of people. You hear me? So it's not about getting your tail in some kind of church. It's not about that. It's instead about a willingness to commit one's loyalty to a group of people. That is, a willingness to really stick with a group of people even though they drive you crazy, which we're going to get into in a moment. So that's what I'm concerned with. So the first answer is the negative, answer, the negative uh, perception of Christianity. And the second is this. Is social networking and technology has made life beautiful, right? We can kind of connect with people from when we were children and all the way up through high school, etc. But I think more importantly, there's, ne there's a negative effect of this technology. You see, I don't know if you knew this, but prior to things like Facebook, people used to sit down in front of one another. And they would look one another in the eyes. And they would speak words back and forth. It's called a conversation. I've never heard of it before, but it's apparently a beautiful thing. They would, somebody would say something, and then the other would look them in the eye and then respond to that statement. And this would happen for sometimes hours. It's amazing how this thing works, right? But this, <laughs> right? <laughs> this is the way we spend time together now, friends. Is it not? Does this not look like your family dinner table? 
Does this not look like everybody that's sitting at a gas station or sitting in a, wa- a doctor's waiting office? We, know, we really know how to be alone together, don't we? As Shelley Turkle calls it, she's a wonderful professor at MIT and she kind of studies these effects. And so we think this stuff makes us feel more connected to the world. That is, I can sit across from my wife, but I can know what you had for dinner. And for some reason, this makes me more social, right? But so we think this makes us more connected, but it doesn't. In fact, psychologists have studied the human interaction between persons and they've they've realized that in a conversation with somebody, 93% of what you are communicating is nonverbal. And only 7% are the words that you say. So 93% of what I'm saying to you right now, you are getting from my hands moving all over the place and my tone of voice and my body posture and the way I'm moving, etc. Only 7% are the words. And so if we reduce all of that to mere text, which is in Facebook, Twitter, text messaging, email, etc., well, then we lose all of that. Everybody knows the anxiety of emails and text messages, do you not? I think I'm going to put on my resume that I'm a professional text message interpreter for my wife because that is my responsibility at home. She does the same for me as well. You get the text message, right? You're like, for example, you'll send somebody, let's get coffee sometime, right? They email you back or text message you back or Facebook you back and they say, sure. And that's it. What does the sure mean, right? Is it a high, like, I'm really excited about spending time with you? Yes, sure. Or is it like a Sure, like a resignation, I'm really not sure. But what if they add like an LOL to it at the end, okay? Does that mean that they're laughing at the fact that I asked them to get coffee with them? Or does that mean that they're just a nice, laughing, happy individual, right? That they just add LOL to the end of everything, right? Or what if they add LOL smiley face? Now, does the smiley face mean I'm getting myself into a relationship with somebody that likes me more than I like them, right? So now I'm concerned about the, the, the inequality between us, right? But what if it's a winky face, right? So we call these emoticons, but a wink is not an emotion. So I don't know what they're conveying to me through the wink. Am I getting myself into a relationship that I'm now going to be uncomfortable in? And it's all communicated in one word, sure, with an epithet of smiley face or winky face, right? We know this anxiety or you'll email a professional or somebody at an authority at your office and they email you back this very terse email and it's like, do they hate me? Am I in trouble? Right? We know this anxiety of text and so we're losing the ability to communicate effectively with one another. But more importantly, I've noticed myself like, like, as I said, this is our dinner table. But I, I mean, I'm at a concert the other night and I'm watching as this concert is happening, this wonderful, beautiful moment of music. I'm watching as these people are not enjoying time with one another, but they're more concerned about getting the right picture with the concert behind them. They're missing an entire song doing this, right? I'm, you've paid a hundred and something dollars to be here and you're going to do this. And it's, and, it's, and it's frustrating, or more importantly, I'm, I'm sitting here with my daughter on the floor and I'm watching her 20, she's 20 months old, and I'm watching her play in the bathtub or watching her stack blocks or color. And instead of just basking in the moment that she's only going to be 20 months for a month, right? There's only a couple days of this. I'm instead more concerned about checking a baseball score. I'm instead more concerned about making sure that I understand what a comedian, some witty thing a comedian has to say or what you're doing for lunch. Like, see what I mean? And so we think we're together, but we're not. So we're losing the ability to communicate. Sherry Turkle says in a conversation she had with an 18-year-old, he said, someday... Someday, but certainly not not now, I'd like to learn to have a conversation. Which is tragic. This is the world in which we inhabit. And so, but it's not just, and and so this is symptomatic of a larger issue. All of this social networking, what it does is it takes this very human interaction between you and I. And now I can put it in my phone such that if I get annoyed with you, or you start driving me crazy, or I disagree with you, I can turn you off immediately. Right? But if we're doing this face-to-face, unless I'm a complete jerk, I'm going to have to sit there and endure the fact that you're telling me about something you bought in a catalog for 20 minutes. Right? But if, if it's in my phone, I can turn you off at any given moment. And this is the structure of our relationships. We take very human things that we cannot control, we place them in our palm and construct a community in our own image. And this is why we don't like to commit to a body of people, because we cannot control them. We can't control them. Right? But we can control you. I can control you if you're in my phone, but to talk to you face-to-face, well, that's uncomfortable. Does that make sense? This is where we're at as a society. But the most disturbing fact, friends, is this. Is that not only is our technology separating us and our dinner tables look like this now, but now we've gotten to the point, throw up the next, yeah, this is it. This is a a robot stuffed animal called Palo. um, And he is used in nursing homes all across Japan. And he's amazing. He can respond to human face, facial interactions. He can respond to human touch. He can respond to human voice. You can name him. If you pet him and tell him his name over and over again, he'll respond to stupid dumb seal if you want him to. So it's fascinating. And it's a way in which, first of all, the, the, the benefits is it helps these elderly that have had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder kind of get over these kinds of things. But on a more disturbing level, these people are communicating with a robot. 
And, and, and on the one hand, you can say, well, that's fine, but that's our job. It's our job to care for these people. It's a human thing to look somebody in the eye and say, I care about you. I'm here. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to help you. Let's walk through this together. But instead, we're taking community and we're just saying, oh, the robots can do that. Let me look at my Facebook page. This is the world in which we inhabit. And it is into the heart of this world. It is into the very essence of this world that the gospel speaks to us out of Hebrews chapter 10. Because here's, here's the thing, friends. I want us to have a robust answer for why we show up to these things on Sunday morning. Besides, I like the music and the sermon. That's good. And we can tell people that. But deep down in who we are, I want us to have a solid conviction about why we show up here beyond just I get something out of the service. Right. I want us to know why we need to be in person to do this kinds of thing. And the gospel is going to tell us that this morning. There's various places that we could go, but we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 today. So we've been a part of this storyteller series, as we've called it. Storytellers, as we've been looking at all of these various Old Testament figures throughout Hebrews chapter 11, looking at the ways in which those figures can kind of speak to our lives today. Well, we're kind of out of figures. We've, we've made our way through the whole chapter. But, we're, but it ends by talking about since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12, 1, talking about the great community that surrounds us, right? And so in light of that community, I want to go back to a previous exhortation that immediately precedes Hebrews chapter 11 which is when he's going to talk to us about the significance of us being together. And that's where we are in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 together. So let's read the text. This is what it says. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day approaching. Can you say amen to God's word? Let's go before God in prayer. God, we live in a world that is in which the human touch that you design is dying. And so, Lord God, I ask that your word would speak into the midst of that world. That your word would speak to my heart and our hearts. That we would see how much we need you and how much we need one another. God, convict us this morning in Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Amen. So this is a very beautiful text. Some of you may have encountered it before about the, the importance of meeting together. And before we get into it, I want us to kind of give, it, give you a brief overview of the book of Hebrews, not the overview of the content per se, but just what's going on in this book. Right. So uh, throw up the next slide. There you go. So the authorship of the book of Hebrews is unknown. We thought Paul wrote it for a long period of time, but it turns out Paul probably, in fact, definitely did not write it. But whoever she was, she was brilliant. Um, and then, um, yeah, that's right. We don't know, so it definitely had to be a woman. So the, um, the audience, well, we're not sure who the audience is either, right? He mentions at the end of the letter this kind of, he says, people from Italy say hey to you, basically. Greetings from those from Italy. And so it's this implication that they're probably in Italy, which is kind of a broader term for saying Rome. So it's probably a group of Roman Christians, which makes this important because at the time of this letter, there's a lot of people that are no longer meeting in the house churches because they're so busy, because they've got a lot of financial obligations and they can no longer meet in the house churches together. So it's, they're Roman Christians. They're second generation Christians, right? Which is important, right? So the first generations are those that immediately follow Jesus. And these are the children of those people. So the urgency of having been with Jesus is not quite as strong among this second generation of Christians. So as a result, as you see in the third bullet point, some are, quote unquote, falling away. That is, they're lacking the urgency. They're lacking the commitment to the faith bill because their their parents had that urgency because they were around Jesus or around people that talked to Jesus. And now they're children of that. They're kind of losing that. We kind of see the same thing in our own generations, do we not? That as these people that have generation by generation were losing those that are really committing to the Christian faith and Christian community. Some are falling away. But the more important thing is they're enduring persecution. Says that their houses have been burned down says that they've been in prison, and it says that they haven't been to the point of being beaten, but they've lost everything that they have. So one can understand falling away from a faith if, this kinds of things, if these are the kinds of things you're enduring. But more importantly, the genre of the book. What is the book of Hebrews? Well, first of all, it's a word of exhortation. It's not a letter. 
Um, it has a letter ending at the very end, but that's probably just tacked on so they could send it to somebody. It's instead a sermon. So we're reading a sermon, and he's going to alternate in the letter between high amounts of, of intellectual theology and then practicality. He's going to say, so if this is the reality of Jesus Christ in us, then what that means for us is this. And so the text that we're reading this morning is one of those practical moments. He's trying to show us, hey, this is the way the, the life, of Christ, life in Christ is as a result of what Christ has done for us. Throughout the letter, he's trying to show the superiority of Jesus to all of the Old Testament covenant stuff, which we're going to get into in more detail together. So in light of this being kind of a sermon, he's concerned about the superiority of Christ, and he's talking to a group of people who are kind of waning in their faith, waning in their gathering together. It's, it's a very relevant letter to our generation, right? So let's look at the text together. And here's how I want to do this. I want to explore kind of four moments of the text. So it's in, in Greek, the whole thing, one sentence, right? Talk about a run-on. You definitely be count off for that in grammar school. But one sentence in Greek, and there's kind of four moments. And the first is this um, kind of because moment, what we're going to call the since we have confidence moment, right? And then we're going to look at three of the, uh, the imperatives that the author is going to give. Three commands that the author is going to give us. But the first is important because he's going to ground all of those commands in a very central reality. And I want to break this down together. I want us to just get all that we can out of this text. We're going to be living in this for the next few minutes. So this is what he says. Uh, let's look at the text. Therefore, my friend, stop. Therefore is important, okay? Therefore means that in light of all that I have just said, I'm going to say something, okay? So all that he's been saying is he's been talking about the superiority of the high priesthood of Christ. High priesthood referring, obviously, to the old covenant in which there was a, guess what, high priest who would go before the people and offer sacrifices on behalf of them unto God. And he's saying Jesus is the superior high priest, the true high priest. That's what he's been talking about. So therefore, in light of Jesus being the superior high priest, since we have confidence, the word, in com- the word for confidence in Greek is parousia, and it most fundamentally refers to the idea that uh, the, the freedom of speech, basically, that one had as a Roman citizen before an authority. Such that as a Roman citizen, if you stood before an authority, you could say whatever you wanted. As, uh, it didn't matter. You weren't, you weren't going to be imprisoned for it. And they called that parousia, which is freedom of speech. And so a derivative meaning of that freedom of speech is kind of this confidence or boldness. That is, if I can stand before a superior and say anything, well, then I can be confident and I can be bold. It was considered a virtue in ancient Greek society. So this is important, right? So he's saying, he's not just saying that we can go before God or stand before God. He's saying, but we have a boldness or an authorization or like a just kind of a, a, a pure confidence without doubt or hesitation to stand in the presence of God. It's a very... It's a very heavy word that he's using. We have to understand that. Why do we have such boldness or confidence? Well, we have it to enter the sanctuary. The sanctuary is very important. He's been talking about the sanctuary just prior to it. Okay, so uh, for those of you who can recall in your Sunday school days, if you had them, um, there was in the ancient temple of God, in the first temple, there was this, um, there was a holy place, right, where one would offer sacrifices and do certain things. And then there was a most holy place, a holy of holies, if you will, in which was the Ark of the Covenant and other things, right? And only one person could go into the most holy place, and that was the high priest. And they only went in that place one time a year to offer a bull or goat, etc., a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And so what he's saying is, Jesus, unlike the high priests who could not Uh, who had to sacrifice for their sins once every year, Jesus, being the superior one, enters the most holy place of the heavenly temple, right? Not the physical temple, but he enters the most holy place of the heavenly temple, of which the earthly temple is a prototype. And going into the holiest place that is beyond the curtain, which we'll uh, see here in a second, there's a curtain that separated the holy from the most holy. Going into the most holy place, he offers himself in the crucifixion, and that crucifixion thereby guarantees a way in which we now have access to the most holy things of God. Okay. Does that make sense? So such that we don't just talk to God because God is nice friends. We don't just have a good relationship with God because God's cool with it. And he's our homeboy, etc. We have a good relationship with God because somebody who loves us very much was willing to die a gruesome death on our behalf. We understand this, right? So that there was a massive sacrifice that Jesus going into the holiest place and offering himself guarantees your ability to stand before God and boldly stand there in confidence that God is not going to be mad at you. But instead, God is going to welcome you into that presence. It's because of the priestly activity of Jesus, not because God is a nice guy. Understand? So we have to appreciate that. We have to understand that in order to ground why we're here in the first place. So here's where it starts. Since we have confidence, we have a boldness to enter the sanctuary that is the holiest things of God by the blood of Jesus, that is his sacrifice. 
and he, he expands upon this, by the new and living way, that is a way that is new and that leads to life, obviously, that, that was opened for us through the curtain, as I said. So Jesus goes into the holiest place of God and offers himself through his flesh, okay? So, and then he's gonna, so that's the first thing. The first thing is this having access, confidence, boldness before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus and his priestly activity. In fact, the Hebrews talks about the high priesthood, uh, Jesus is high priesthood as one who empathizes with us, being fully human, right? We often like to think of Jesus as one who never did any, he kind of floated along the ground and had hair like mine and wore white robes and just kind of was like, come unto me all who are here. But friends, Jesus was dirty and he had to bathe and he burped and he did all kinds of very human things. And I hope we understand that about Jesus. He empathizes with us on a very visceral, like corporal level. Okay, so Jesus, I hope that I'm not trying to be offensive at all. I'm trying to show you the humanity of Jesus. It's very important because it allows him to empathize with us. It's beautiful, right? So Jesus empathizes with us as the great high priest. So he's over us. He's the one through whom we have access to God. But the second thing. Since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now, the house of God is not a metaphor for a building, but is instead us. We are the house of God, friends. Such that it's not only that we have access to God through Jesus Christ, but now that wonderful, empathetic, beautiful, compassionate high priest presides over all of our life together. Such that his authority governs all of our interaction and all of our conversation. Such that we are safe forever in God's sight because of the beauty, the high priesthood of Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a really cool thought to think that we are safe forever together? But more importantly, uh, go back to the next, the last slide, Daryl. Not quite there yet. Um, more importantly, this thought is going to ground the, all of the various commands that he's going to give us in the next few verses. Such that all of this sense language, right? He's going to say, in light of having all of this, do this. Now, I don't know what perception of God you have in the room today. I don't know what you brought with you. I don't know how you see God. But I think often, oftentimes, especially if we've heard all that God has done for us in Jesus, we think now that God has done all these things. It is now our duty, our obligation to do things for God, which is true on some kind of basic level. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to show us is he's trying to say, quit being afraid of God. And in light of appreciating all that Jesus has done in light of the gratitude of Christ, that gratitude now motivates our obedience. That is, our obedience is not motivated by obligation. Our obedience is not motivated because God is bigger than us or because we owe God something. Rather, our obedience is, 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 is motivated by our gratitude for Christ. That is, we can only be truly obedient people if we are grateful people, if we can truly understand what Christ has done for us. Does this make sense? So if you want to have a motivation to obey God, well, then we need to have a a pure and humble experience and understanding of what Christ has done for us. To experience and understand that is to be motivated to obey God, right? So if we can truly appreciate all of the beauty that we have in God's sight, well, then that's when we are motivated to act and obey. Does that make sense? Okay, cool. Um, let's, uh, Let's summarize it this way. All Christian life, experience, and community have their beginning not in human obligation to God, but rather in our joyful appreciation of Jesus Christ. Our life with God is energized by gratitude. You want to know why we're not, quote-unquote, on fire for God? It's not because we can't muster enough, quote-unquote, fire, right? It's because we've lost the pure and humble experience and, and perception of the beautiful sacrifice of Jesus. May we pray for a pure experience of that. May we pray just that we may grasp just a taste of it once more. And that, seeing what we have in Christ, will then motivate us to be obedient people. Okay, so he's going to ground all of these, obe- uh, these commands in these, in these realities. But um, the first, so after the, the first moment is this since we have confidence moment. And the second is this, let us approach, right? So since we have this confidence and since Jesus presides over our life together, let us approach. And let's look at the text together. This is what he says. Since we have confidence, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So the word let us approach is a word, the technical term for worship in the priestly temple. But he's talking about the most important thing about the word approach is it's a present. It's the present tense in the Greek, which means if it was a past tense, it would mean let us approach one time. Right. But instead, it's a present tense, which means it implies continually approaching as often as we need. Isn't that beautiful? So he's saying, let's approach 
and let's keep on approaching God. Because the security of what Jesus has done for us is that grounded, is that secure, is that faithful, that we can go to God as often as we need because of the sacrifice of Jesus. So let us approach and keep on approaching. How? With a true heart that is a transformed heart, a heart that is pure of intention. So he's previously he's talked about the new covenant of Christ that has been uh, the, the new covenant that Christ has brought, which is foretold by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 through 33, in which God says that I will transform their hearts. Friends, if we are if we are pure before, I mean, if we are following God, we'll notice certain things about our hearts. Right. Our dispositions begin to change. Anybody ever notice this can testify to this this morning But you realize that there's certain things I used to be kind of I used to react to people in a very angry and bitter way. But now I'm realizing that God is opening my heart to forgive. Right. We're watching the various the very core of who we are. That is, Jesus is not concerned with behavior modification, but with the transformation of the heart, the transformation of the, of the very dispositions of the human person. So let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith, knowing that this, this, this whole confidence of God, standing before God purely, is not something that's going to be revoked from us. How? With our hearts sprinkled clean from... It reminds me of ice cream every time. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, this is important. I keep doing tenses in Greek, but the tenses matter. It's a perfect tense, okay? So first of all, the sprinkled thing is not ice cream. It instead pertains to the, the old covenant in which one would bring a sacrifice, uh, in which a covenant was ratified with blood, the blood signifying that one was purified of one's sins, right? So he's saying our hearts have been that way. Now, it's a perfect tense in Greek, and what that means is, is that, for example, if I were to say, if I were to, say to you, how long have you worked at GE, and you say, I have worked at GE for the last 20 years, that's a perfect tense in English. And what does it imply? It means 20 years ago you started working at GE, and you still work at GE now, right? Well, if I say... Well, where did you work? And you say, well, I worked at GE. Well, that means that for, I worked at GE for 20 years means that there was a time 20 years ago where you worked for GE over 20 years, but you no longer work there now. You see the difference between have worked and worked? Okay. The same thing happens in Greek. That is a perfect tense in Greek means that have done something. That is our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Mean there was a moment in the past in which God purified us of an evil conscience. And that, that condition endures into the present tense, which is beautiful, right? We often think that we feel so impure before God. I think that is an epidemic in the room this morning. We feel so impure, so imperfect, so unworthy to stand before God. We think that almost as if God might give us an A-plus just for being here this morning, right? Because, my goodness, I've, I was angry this week, and I looked at this this week that I wasn't supposed to, and I spoke to this person this week like I wasn't supposed You see what I mean? We feel impure before God. But what the writer of Hebrews is showing us is that no matter what we feel, no matter what we feel, all these memories that reside in our brains of the horrible things that we have done, no matter what we have feel, there was a feel, there was a moment in the past in which Christ purified your heart, and that purity endures to the present tense because of the very grace of Jesus Christ. You stand before him clean. You hear me? Which is wonderful. You stand before him clean, not because once again, God is a nice guy, but because Christ did that for you. It's amazing that we can do that. And we don't want to accept it. The radical grace of God, it just, it almost disturbs us, right? We'd almost rather earn it. But the beauty is that Christ, God says, I see you as clean because Christ is your high priest. And there's nothing you can do about it. And in light of our gratitude for it, we obey. Why? Well, if that's the case, then wide open are the doors to approach God without shame or fear. And it's because of Jesus, right? So let us approach God with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies having been washed with pure water. It's a perfect tense again. He's just referring to the act of baptism. He's referring to the symbolic act of baptism representing the purity of our lives before God. So that's, it's just let us, let's keep going, friends. If you feel ashamed before him this morning, notice that God wants to free you of that today. If you feel broken and guilty, God wants to free you of that this morning. And he wants to say, come unto me. Let me give you new life. Let me show you a beautiful way in me, a way of purity and a way of pure, open love in which I preside over you in grace and compassion. Right. All right. So let's continue. So the first moment since, uh, summarize it this way. While Christ's work alone makes a life with God possible. It is the understanding and experience of Christ's work that motivates us to confidently move toward him. Our experience of Christ's cleansing compels us to approach. That is, we don't just muster up the energy to go before God. Instead, we experience his cleansing and we feel so compelled by that grace that the grace draws us unto God. Okay, 
So that's the first moment. The first moment is since we have confidence, all of this is going to be grounded in the sacrifice of Christ. The second is let us approach and keep on approaching to God. And then the third moment is let us hold fast. Let us hold fast. So this is what the text says. Since we have confidence, so he said let us approach. And now he's going to say let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. That is, if the system's rigged, friends, if God has set it up to where you are forgiven in him merely because of his grace and that's the way it is, well, then we can trust God to carry us forward all the way to the end, right? So the hope is not a hope for a better America. The hope is not the hope for a better tomorrow, okay? All this jargon and garbage that we hear in political talk and stuff. That's not the hope. The hope is the day in which God invades the world with God's kingdom and consummates that kingdom here on earth forever, right? That's the hope, the, the, a reign of justice and righteousness and peace and forgiveness and love and harmony. That's the hope that God is going to bring that to fruition here in the earth. And he's saying if we can trust God to forgive us and to stand purely before him, well friends, and he presides over our life continually, well then we can trust him to the very end to take us into that beautiful, wonderful kingdom. So let us hold fast to that hope. Right? So that's important. So the first is let us approach. The second is let us hold fast. And the third is the reason we've gathered this morning. The third is let us consider one another. Let us consider one another. Let's start with the text. Since Jesus has done all of this, let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Okay, um, in the Greek, it's literally let us consider one another, which is important because the word consider means to regard or to notice or to reflect upon. It's the same word Jesus uses in the parables when he says, consider the lilies of the field, right? Which he's basically saying, look at them and reflect upon them. How, what a pertinent word at this time in American society, right? In a time when I see you and I do this, right? Or a time in which this trains me to only see others as objects for my entertainment, such that when I am at the grocery store, the person I am standing in front of is not an individual, but rather is a cashier meant to check out all of my groceries for me. And if she does not do that appropriately, well, then I have the right to be rude to her because she's not a child of God. She's a cashier. Or this teaches me to see other, other people as those who are, merely exist in my world. And the text comes before us and it speaks to us quite boldly. And it says, why don't you just look at one another? Why don't you just take the time to look into the individual's eyes who's sitting behind you, beside you, near you. What a prophetic act just to look in another's eyes in an age in which we can't even look at one another because we're so consumed with our technology. Right? Let us just consider one another. Let us look into the eyes of another. And instead of seeing them as somebody to control, to manipulate for our own ends, to look at them and just say, they purely as they stand now, even though they frustrate me, even though they may uh, drive me crazy, they purely as they stand now are a child of God. And if they're a Christian, they're a brother or a sister. And to stand and to look at them in the eyes and to say, okay, you're not for me. You're your own person with your own story. And God loves you for who you are individually. God loves you as my brother and my sister. That has power. To merely live in a world in which we can reflect on the fact that individuals that stand before us are God's children. And this is important. So he says, but let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds. The word provoke, it it often has a negative connotation. Almost as if you're being prodded like a cattle, right? So let us kind of prod one another on to love and good deeds. And I love this. I absolutely love this. Because I see this in two ways. One, it could mean that, you know, if I see you being mean to somebody, I'm like, hey, you need to stop being mean because it's not good to be mean to people, right? Your parents should have taught you that. So, um, but also, but more importantly, I don't know what it means to love somebody until I am face to face with somebody that I do not like. And that person is a Christian. Do you understand me? So now I provoke you, you, we provoke one another to good deeds, not merely by telling one another, hey, you should be a good person, but we provoke one another to good deeds because it is in enduring one another that we learn what true love and patience and loyalty is. You see what I mean? In a social network, I can turn you off at any point, but in the Christian community, if I have to stand before you and listen to you talk about something that I don't want to, that I don't care about or something that drives me crazy, maybe you've even hurt me, huh? At a more serious level. Well, in the Christian community, I learned to love as Jesus loved as I sit there and practice patience and love on you as you tell me your story. You see what I mean? And I love the way that Lillian Daniel, she's a, she's a pastor um, uh, in a, I can't remember where, but she, she's written this book about spiritual but not religious. She's kind of critiqued this notion. And she says this, this is wonderful. Any idiot can find God alone in the sunset, 
Think about that for a minute. Any idiot can find God alone in the sunset. It takes a certain maturity to find God in the person sitting next to you who not only voted for the wrong political party, but has a baby who is crying while you're trying to listen to the sermon. Community is where the religious rubber meets the road. People challenge us, ask hard questions. They disagree. They need things from us. They require our forgiveness. It's where we get to practice the things that we preach. Isn't that beautiful? That we need one another in order to understand what it truly means to love one another. We love ideas of community where it's very, this very sentimental story about we all kind of came around this person when they were in a dire time of need and we, and we love them. And those are beautiful stories and I don't want to discredit those. Those show the beauty of Christian community. But the Christian community is also found in just those nitty-gritty, drive-yourself-crazy moments, right? I remember sitting in the Christmas service, Christmas Eve service, right? And for whatever reason, we don't offer childcare in Christmas Eve services. And there it was, like I'm sitting there and I'm trying to listen to the sermon, really reflect upon the meaning of Christmas in my life. And there is a child that it might as well have been just climbing the poles, of like climbing the pillars. I mean, just screaming and laughing and running around. And I just thought, I just kept looking, giving the looks, you know, the glance. Like, if I give the glance enough, they're just going to be provoked. And, okay, anybody knows what I'm talking about. Okay, so this is the moment. And, uh, and I just had this moment of sheer and utter total conviction. Because here I am, listening to a story, and trying to reflect upon the significance of a story about a baby that came and interrupted the world. And God is saying, what if you could hear my voice in that child that is driving you crazy? What if I could be found in that world? You see, because the Roman world didn't think they could find the voice of God in a manger, right? What if God is saying, you can find my voice even in this Christian brother and sister who are trying their best to control this child, right? What if we could find God in one another? Can we do it? Are we willing to wrestle it out? Are we willing to stay together? See, this is the problem with Christian community today. We think that we can love God and kind of be surrounded by God. And I I just want to worship you, God, but these people drive me crazy. I'm not going to go to church. That is a vapid and shallow Christianity. Because what God is trying to say is, he's not not saying that you're you're a bad person for not going to church. He's just saying, there's so much I want to show you through interacting with other people. There's so much of me that you do not know unless you're willing to have that conversation. There's so much of me that you do not know unless you're willing to carry that burden with somebody else. There's so much of me that you do not know unless you're willing to love despite flaw, despite annoyance. Do you see what I mean? So God forms Jesus in us through one another. We need one another to look like Jesus. Otherwise, God is created in our own image. And we think that God just kind of looks like the warm, fuzzy feeling we get when we look at God in the sunset. Instead, God is going to show you, I am found in the dirty, nitty-gritty community of the people that you're surrounded with. These people in this room, we need one another to find God. I know it's not, it's not going to preach you home, right? Be annoyed. Like, it's not going to do that. But I want, us to feel, I want us to feel God and see God in one another. So maybe we can summarize it this way. I need to be quiet. All right. Our gathering together is an automatic outworking of our gratitude for Christ's sacrifice. To appreciate Christ's work for us is to imitate that work in behalf of one another. Community is not optional. It is the primary means by which God forms us into his loving image. Now hear me, I'm not trying to say that you need to go church shopping as a problem or anything like that. I think it's beautiful that you can find a church that you really feel at home at. But whenever you find that, and and if this is your church home, may we throw ourselves wholeheartedly into one another. Despite whatever disloyalty, despite whatever problems or annoyances, may we find the grace of God in the midst of that. And we truly see that the community, we don't gather together for the sake of merely hearing worship and word. We gather together because it is the, it is the automatic, like knee-jerk reaction to appreciating the sacrifice of Christ. We gather together because as we appreciate Christ, we find one another that, we find in one another Jesus, right? So we find that character. We don't know what love and faithfulness and hope and patience is unless we are together. So, uh, but the, the passage isn't in this way. And Alan and the guys, you can come up. Um, this is the way the passage is. So let us consider how to provoke one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So not neglecting to meet together, but instead encouraging. The word encourage means to stand alongside of somebody. So it's literally being together, encouraging, rebuking, etc. But encouraging one another, and all the more... As you see the day approaching. Now the day is not like a day of the week. The day is instead reference to the great day of the Lord. That is the day of the Lord when all of this great kingdom comes invading into the earth. And so if we know where history is going. The people in this room that have a committed relationship with Jesus Christ. Or maybe you don't and you're curious about that. 
Um, but the people in the room who, we can talk more about that, but the people in the room who are pursuing and understanding where the history is going, then in light of that day approaching, in light of us being ever nearer to the realization of the kingdom of God, that presents a greater urgency for us to meet together. Right? I like to think of it this way. Um, so it's fall, right? Almost fall. It's still kind of summer. But like last weekend, um, it was cooler than normal, right? You remember? It was like in the 70s, right? You kind of got, you walked outside and you're like, oh my goodness, fall's coming. Thank you, Jesus. Football's coming. Like baseball playoffs are coming. All the good stuff's coming, right? So walk outside and it's, it's nice and in the 70s. And, and so you could wear the long sleeve shirt for the first day of the year or for the first day since winter. So it's amazing because what's happened the past week, it's still kind of remained relatively cool. But in years past, right, you'll have like three or four days of like solid, intense fall, right? And then it'll go back to summer heat for like three weeks. You're like, what in the world is happening, right? But you, in, over those three days, you bring out all the fall clothes. You bring out all the fall decorations because it's September. And my goodness, we are going to have fall, even if I have to inaugurate it with my decorations, right? So um, this is... <laughs> And so we, we bring out all the fall clothes, and it's fascinating. You'll see, even after the three or four days of really cool weather, there's three or four weeks in which it's hot again, and people will still dress like it's fall, right? You'll still see the guy wearing, like, the light hoodie or the light jacket. You'll see people wearing closed-toed shoes. The flip-flops start disappearing. You'll see people wearing long pants. And in reality, it's still 89 degrees, right? I mean, it's still hot as anything, and it feels just like it did in May. But it's fascinating because people are still... My goodness, I know where history is going. I know where the seasons are going. I will inaugurate fall with my wardrobe. And, and I saw this as a beautiful metaphor for the church. And here's how. So there's these moments when we come together in moments like these. And, and, I, and I pray that we taste it often. Where we come together and we truly experience Jesus Christ. Like we truly experience a taste of where the world's headed in the coming kingdom. You know what I mean? Like there's this moment of compassion or reconciliation or justice or love. And maybe it's just a simple glance we feel from a neighbor. Or maybe it's a hug. Or maybe it's just somebody saying, hey, I'm praying for you. And there's just this taste of a coming kingdom. And it's so beautiful and it's so wonderful. And we can just say, oh, if all of history is heading that way, I'm ready. You know what I mean? And, and I see us as the church, as those people who despite living in a world that looks nothing like the kingdom of God, Right? It's easy to walk out in the world and go, oh, yeah, there's pain, there's suffering, there's brokenness, there's disease, there's all these bad things. God doesn't have to be anywhere. God doesn't look to be anywhere near this, right? It's easy to go out and say that. But may we as a church be those that belligerently wear the clothes of the coming kingdom in a world in which everybody is wearing the clothes of the kingdom of the age. See what I mean? So that when we see these people wearing hoodies and stuff, may we be reminded that we are clothing ourselves in compassion and justice and reconciliation, and hope, that we are people who dress in these things, not because we're idiots and we're living in denial, but instead because we know that just come a couple weeks, the kingdom of God is around the corner. You see what I mean? And so we as a church need one another, not because we only discover those virtues, and we only see that as the day approaches near in one another's presence. So may we come together in moments like these, not merely for the word and the sermon, the word and the worship and all that good stuff, which is the primary reason why we gather. But also may we come because we know that as we gather, there are greater tastes of that coming kingdom. May we be a people who wear the kingdom of God in a world in which the kingdom of the age seems the most predominant wardrobe. And we can only we need one another to encourage one another to say, hey, look, keep going in it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep meeting together because it's so significant. You only discover certain aspects of God as we meet together. So, um, summarize it this way. Our weekly gathering is a rehearsal of the coming kingdom of God. In one another's presence and worship, we learn what it means to live in loving anticipation of God's future. This community is a gift of God. This, the group of people that you sit around, God's gift to you. God's gift to you. Man, if we were persecuted and we lived in a nation where we couldn't express these things, oh, how desperately we would need one another, right? And it's our gift. It's God. God is saying, I've given you the gift of myself. And the person sitting next to you is Jesus to you. So I'm, I'm preaching this sermon to death. I need to stop. All right. Um, does that make sense? You with me? You hear me? Okay, cool. Um, here's what I want to do in response. I'm going to say a prayer. And uh, we know, I don't know if we've done this before. We've done it in kind of derivative ways. But I want us to take a moment after I pray, and the response is not anything spiritual in the sense of like you're going to come down to an altar or anything like this. Um, instead, I want us to 
talk to one another. I want us to turn the phone off, and I want us to have a conversation. And, and, and if you're uncomfortable with this, if you're highly introverted like I am, I understand that this is, there is no requirement whatsoever. Please hear me. I'm not trying to force you to do anything you don't want to do. And I know I hear the, cl- the pins clicking and the hearts beating. I know what's happening. Um, but I want us to feel comfortable. I want us to find somebody. Either here's what I want us to do. If you know somebody, two things. Find somebody you don't know and meet them and remember their name. Remember their eye color. Remember the quiver in their voice when they say the word Jesus. Whatever it is, remember those specific things about that God has placed in them. Meet somebody new. And two, if you know somebody, if you know them quite well or maybe an acquaintance, I just want you to encourage them. So when you say, this is what I like about you. This is what God has for you. I admire this about you. You know what? I, I, re- I saw you the other day worshiping. And let me just say, like, I, I was blown away and blessed by the way that you worship God. Whatever it is. Maybe it could be, I like the way that you set up pipe and drape. I don't know. Whatever it is. I just want to take us a moment. We're going to get out of our seats. And we're going to be God's family here. I want to cultivate a warmth here. I want to cultivate a family atmosphere. Friends, we are brothers and sisters by virtue of the grace of Jesus Christ. That is it. Jesus binds us all together. And I know it's uncomfortable. I know it's awkward. But I I think it's important that we do these kinds of things from time to time. That we take this from being an auditorium in which we consume a product into a place in which we produce and make the family of God together. Or we we entrust ourselves to the family that God has created. So I'm going to pray. And then I want you to meet somebody new or or encourage somebody in a very significant way. We're going to take a couple minutes to do this and then it's over. But let's, uh, let's go before God in prayer. God. In an age in which people continually see human interaction um, superfluous to their lives, I ask that your gospel would speak to us today and show us the beauty of you in the faces we see around us. May you convict our hearts to appreciate your son in ways that we have never imagined before. And out of that appreciation and insecure in that appreciation, may we reach out to one another. Bless us with patience. Bless us with love. Bless us with righteousness. Disturb us with one another that we may be provoked unto your virtues. So God, over these next few moments, may your Holy Spirit rest in this room. May you govern conversations. May you make new connections. May you um, solidify old ones. And uh, may we feel your grace here as your family, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Take a few moments and meet one another.